Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, everybody, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. And let me tell you why for a change, because this one is about a useful idea for a change universal voting what you heard me universal voting they do this in about 20 countries around the world in australia they've been doing this for over a hundred years everyone is required to vote in australia if you don't you pay a fine a small fine but a fine 97 percent of australians are registered to vote 90 percent vote but I'll let my guests explain it. They're E.J. Dion, columnist for The Washington Post, and Miles Rappaport, director of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, authors of 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And the forward is written by Heather McGee, my favorite guest. So you know this is going to be a great one. But before you hear from E.J. and Miles, let me just say something about this idea of universal voting. Do you know how much time and money and effort campaigns spend on getting people not to vote and how much state legislatures focus on suppressing votes? Yes, this is not going to happen right away. The strategy is to get a state or a few states to do it. Florida, for example, is not a candidate for that. But California is and Massachusetts, huh? or Minnesota. And speaking of Minnesota, a little while ago, we just joined the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. The what, Al? Come on, Al, you're throwing away too many concepts by us. Well, I've talked about this before a few years ago. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact has been around since 2006. And here's what it is. First, what's an interstate compact? Well, it's just what it sounds like. For instance, Minnesota belongs to the Great Lakes Interstate Compact. Now, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact now has 17 members, 16 states, and the District of Columbia, and the members of the compact agree to cast their electoral votes for the winner of the national popular vote. But it doesn't kick in until the members of the compact have between them 270 electoral votes. With Minnesota... The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact has 205 electoral votes. And Michigan, which now has the governor and both houses of the state legislature, may very well be the next to join. They have 16 electoral votes, which would bring the compact to 221, just 49 short. Now, this isn't going to happen, unfortunately, before the 2024 election. But as co-chair of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Advisory Committee, I'm very optimistic that we've got a shot at this before 2028 when the Republican nominee may very well be, once again, former one-term President Donald Trump. They're crazy. 
those Republicans. Okay, but let's get to E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport and 100% Democracy, the case for universal voting. It's a great one, you know, or a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. EJ and I have known each other for quite a while. Went to college together. I think it's something like 53 or 54 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. God help us. Well, we're having our 50th reunion uh, in a month or so. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, EJ. And uh, Miles, uh, and I don't I, I don't know you, <laughs> but I know people know you. I know Heather McGee, of course, worked with you at Demos. And uh, you're now at, at the Kennedy School, right? I'm actually the executive director now. My main title now is executive director of 100% Democracy an initiative for universal voting, riffing off of the book. Oh, so that's part of your role at the school is to promote this. What yes. we're talking about is uh, your book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting, which I think is a great idea. Uh, and you, I'll let you make the case for it. But I want to start with how many countries, EJ, uh, have universal voting right now? There are about two dozen countries that uh, have it, and uh, it's been made to work in a lot of places. Um, and I, you know, Chile has is one example uh, that has gone in and out, but has sort of re-embraced universal voting. The example that we cite a lot in the book because it has such a long history is Australia's. Australia has had this system for a hundred years and has made it work uh, to the point where 97% of Australians are registered to vote. And in any given election, 90% of them actually cast ballots. 
And we like to cite Australia partly because it's a country lots of Americans like. It's got a lot of traditions similar uh, to ours uh, politically, but also because it's hard to find a better proof of concept uh, than Australia. And one of the things we like to talk about is sort of a, a crazy flaw in our current system where our elections almost become like a fancy dinner party with an A-list, a B-list, and a C-list. You know, the A-list are people who are registered and vote all the time, and they get all of the attention or almost all of the attention uh, from politicians, consultants. And and actually, some political parties, especially the Republican Party, want as small a number of people on all the lists. A hundred percent, as it were. Um, no, and that's right. And that's the other reason why we're pushing this idea. Just to push my analogy through the B list, uh, people registered maybe, but don't vote a lot in the C list. The unregistered get almost all the attention. And we feel that this system would put an end to that dinner party approach to our elections. But it is also the best way to fight against the voter suppression uh, that you just talked about. I'm going to argue with you a little bit there. The unregistered get all the attention in the sense that Democrats are trying to register their unregistered voter people. They identify as probable Democrats and Republicans try to register unregistered Republicans. But isn't there a lot of discouraging people from getting involved in other ways? Well, that is part of the point of what we are arguing for, because if everybody in politics understands that everybody is going to vote or almost everybody is going to vote. Voter suppression doesn't work because it effectively becomes illegal. Uh, Secondly, everybody on all sides knows that uh, they have to appeal to a broad electorate and that trying to just tamp down the other side's turnout, either through legal measures, as has happened in roughly 19 states that are trying to make it harder to vote or through campaigns that just try to so attack and demonize the other candidate that their own supporters just won't show up. We feel that this system provides an incentive for a different kind of politics that encourages people to participate because everybody knows they're accountable to everybody. And as I say, all the provisions we propose around universal voting are aimed at making it easier to register and easier to vote. Well, it should be if, if you're required to vote. And this is you're required to vote in, in Australia. And if you don't, you pay a small fine, right? Correct. OK. Um, this is, uh, of course, with federal elections. Don't, don't states run their elections? Yes, states do run their elections. And in fact, what we hope will happen with universal voting is that some states and some adventurous municipalities will really take to adopting this and that will sort of generate pressure federal. You could do this as a federal law, but we don't expect it. Our focus in the effort to uh, move universal forward is the states. So the sequence that you're looking at is California or some other state saying, we're just going to make it mandatory that everybody votes. And the state legislature passes that and the governor signs it and the Supreme Court of the state signs off on it. Yes, exactly. We would love to see that in uh, in a number of states. California 
is so big, it might not be the first. But yes, we would love to see California. We actually had a bill that was uh, proposed in the state of Washington that had a public hearing and was passed out of committee. So the discussion is beginning, and I'm delighted to see Now, it. thus far, Americans are not for this, but uh, you're part of the reason we're doing this is <laughs> to talk about why we should be doing this. And of course, you know, uh, people run campaigns, you know, sometimes uh, they, one, they target voters who don't vote enough. They have to, they have to spend a whole bunch of money targeting people who think they are their people and get them out. Right. And then there's a lot of money uh to, to suppress votes, to make people not vote, <laughs> right? So that both those expenditures would uh, would kind of go away, right? Is that the theory? I mean, is that yes, one theory, yes. one theory? Yeah, this would really change the in- incentive structures for campaigns. And I can tell you that because I ran for election 11 times in the state of Connecticut, uh, served as secretary of the state. But the incentive structure is, going back to EJ's analogy of the dinner party, to go out and get your people. And if you can get one more of your people and one less of their people, uh, then you win. And I think the incentive structure, therefore, is to kind of enrage, to engage, scare people about the other campaign with negative uh, advertising, etc. And we think that this uh, changes that and turns it on its head, because if you have the idea that every single person is going to vote because they are required to do so in the same way that they're required to serve on jury duty now, then you really have to be talking to everybody and it makes it a persuasion campaign rather than a a suppression and turnout campaign. Yeah, as I read the book, the the history of voting in the United States is probably different than a lot of people think. We've changed stuff. Uh, Everyone knows that only men could vote, only, I guess, white men. Could black men in the North vote? In some states. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, you, what you're looking at. Property I'm owners, you, right? It was property yeah, owners. Yeah, it, well. it varied by state uh, you know, before the Civil War. But what you're talking about is the right thing to talk about, which is that over the course of American history, we have steadily expanded our democracy to try to include everybody. We started with white men of property, and that was it. Um, then we expanded it to men without property. And then briefly after the Civil War, we expanded the electorate to include black men. And then along, uh, Reconstruction was overthrown and black people in the South were disenfranchised. Took us all the way to the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts to reenfranchise lots of black Americans. And of course, we only enfranchised women nationally. It started in the States. Wyoming was the first. That's right. We enfranchised women only in 1920. So we have pushed forward over our history to include everyone. And we see this idea as the logical step from our own history, which is to uh, include everyone on Election Day, just as we feel an obligation to have juries open to everyone. One of the greatest victories of the civil rights movement. Uh, was to uh, bar racial discrimination in jury selection, which, by the way, meant uh, requiring everybody to serve on the jury, potentially. Yeah, they did that in the South, right? They Right. Well, the Civil Rights Act uh, also finally ended discrimination against uh, black people in serving on juries. And 
Uh, and again, we we understand that's amazing we talk about a lot, if you think about it. But of jury course, duty of is course. compulsory, yeah. <laughs> but we do that because that's the way to guarantee fairness in jury selection. What percentage of Americans are at at currently say they'd be for this? Well, I joke uh, that our book is either the most honest, we are the most honest or dumbest book writers ever, because we did our own polling on this. And at the moment, only about uh, a quarter of Americans, 26% support this idea, according to our own polling. Now, now in your polling, did people say why? They, I mean, did right. you- And um, the good news in our polling is that about half of uh, the country is at least open to the idea uh, and we regard that as a pretty good opening for an idea no one has ever advanced systematically. And you're right. We made a point of asking people why they opposed it. One of the reasons was, we thought, a really good reason, which is that it would disproportionately punish those who already have the hardest time voting, mm-hmm. which is precisely why the book, as you know, also includes a series of measures that about half the states are taking now or have taken to make it as easy as possible to vote. vote by mail, early mail, early voting, uh, drop you know, automatic registration, early voting, mail voting, uh, drop boxes, the works j- just to make it as easy as possible to cast a ballot in Australia. You can go to any polling place in your state and cast uh, a vote on Election Day. You know what might make the red states who, I mean, all those things, red states uh, especially have tried to prevent and limit, like things like early voting, drop boxes, voting by mail. But say you're in a uh, presidential election. Boy, oh boy, if there was 100% voting in all these blue states, imagine... The margins uh, you would have in the popular vote if they don't have that in the other states. Now, that doesn't get you electoral votes, I guess. But can you imagine how swamped these red states that don't have universal voting would would get? That's something I didn't see you talk about in the book. Right. It's interesting how a Harvard law professor, uh, Nick Stephanopoulos, has made the case that one of the ways that universal voting could advance is if cities in red or purple states were to adopt universal voting, call it uh, Nashville or Memphis, and then that would put immense pressure on the rest of the state to do it. Oh, that's that's a good idea. So, so the uh, especially like in North Carolina or something like that, and, and really purple states or in Virginia. You know what I yes, mean? Yes, I think it could make a real difference. But EJ Ooh. and I are very uh, careful in the book to say this is not a kind of a Democratic Party. It can't be. You know, wolf in sheep's clothing. We really feel like this would enhance our democracy by making every single person a participant. And I think that we're in, for instance, in Australia, they do find that people who are required to vote familiarize themselves with the issue, familiarize themselves with the process. There's that. of people are registered to vote in Australia, and of that, 90% have voted in every single election since 1920. So this is something. I want to go back for a second, though, if I can, out to the polling issue, which is, you know, I have been in this work since I was a legislator in Connecticut and Secretary of the State. And until I read a piece that EJ and his Brookings colleague Bill Galston wrote 
in 2015, I had never heard about this issue. I had never been in a discussion about it. And so hardly surprising that an idea that has never been presented, never had a case made for it in this country, uh, even though there are many countries where it's uh, natural, that it doesn't pull very well. So I think our job is to raise the idea, get the discussion going in the country, see if we can find some some, uh, laboratories of democracy, to coin a phrase, that might actually uh, endorse the idea and move it forward that way. But I'm not troubled by the original, the initial polling data at all. Uh, Could I just say real quick, Al, on this Democratic-Republican point, which is um, this system would empower groups that are underrepresented in the electorate. Those groups include Democratic-leaning groups, uh, minorities and young people, but it also includes uh, groups that in many places lean Republican, white working class voters. And the proof is in elections where we wondered when Biden beat uh, Trump by 7 million votes nationally, the Republicans still picked up House seats. Why did that happen? Because in some of the Republican parts of the country, turnout went up uh, and Trump voters came out and defeated some of the Democrats who were elected in 2018, which happened to be an election where Democrats were more mobilized. So that we try to argue in the book that Republicans should not be as afraid as they obviously are about an expanded electorate. We think that's a mistaken view on their part. I doubt Miles and I will persuade them, but there are Republicans out there we know who are interested in this idea because they understand two things. One is some of their people don't vote. And number two, it would push the Republican Party to speak to a broader part of the electorate, which Republicans who don't like where their party is right now, it would create new incentives for the party to change. Yeah, you wonder how they would be reaching people who, uh, you know, Republican voters who aren't turning out. Who are the Republican voters who aren't turning out? Are Are they low information voters? Or, or is that all Republican voters? No, that was a joke. Although, kind of. It was a joke because it's partially true. <laughs> Republicans will be resistant to this, right? Because probably a largest majority of people who don't vote are people who they try to suppress their vote, right? I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's a mixed group. I mean, if you think about it, if you start the, 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 the thought with, who are the high propensity voters? Who are the, the people who are disproportionately represented in the people who actually vote and therefore who are disproportionately represented in the people who get attention from the system? You're talking about older voters, whiter voters, ha- more highly educated voters and higher income voters. And so flip that. And what you find is that younger voters are really the least represented here. and They would have the most to gain from a universal voting system. Uh, communities of color also wrote at lower levels than the, than white voters, but it's it's gotten the, uh, the the percentages have narrowed significantly. And you have uh, low uh, education, lower income white voters, often in rural areas, and they would be advantaged by this too. So I think the point that EJ was making is, you can't just say this is automatically going to uh, impact or advantage one party or the other. But what would be advantaged would be a genuinely reflective electorate and a political system that had to respond to everyone. And we think that's a we think that's a full good from either partisan perspective. Yeah, just to put we have a chart, as you know, Al, in the book 
18 to 29s, 54% turnout in 2020, 65 plus, 74.5%, a big gap there. Uh, Less than a high school diploma, 41.5%, advanced degree, uh, 83.0%, and then a smaller but still significant gap by race. So you're talking about a set of groups, some of which, certainly young people right now are more democratic, but other groups where it is not clear that this would automatically benefit uh, Democrats. But what we do have is young people and less well-off people across the board are underrepresented in the electorate. So there's a real class skew uh, that we think helps condition where uh, the conversation in politics uh, goes, um, where uh, you really do want to bring in people of all kinds who are less privileged into the electorate. And there's some evidence that in countries that have this system, politicians of all parties, but public policy in general, uh, tilts a little bit more to the less advantage than it does in countries that don't. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Now, there are countries who do this, who have had problematic politics, right? Or have had problematic histories. You mean that have this system? That have the system, like sure. Brazil, um, right? Or the although we we sort of focused on the what you might call genuinely democratic, that is small D democratic countries, where we could agree that on balance these have been pretty healthy democracies. And there are a lot of very long standing democracies. Again, our friends in Australia are uh, the sort of banner, uh, carrying the banner leaders of this, you know, where this system has worked. Uh, we, you know, sure, North Korea has it, but we don't include North Korea on our list as model uh, countries, although I'm sure some right winger will throw that at us. Give me your second uh, best country as an example. Um, Belgium has it. Uh, Italy has had versions of this. They have complicated, but definitely a democratic politics. I am looking 
for um, our list. Australia, Belgium, um, Bolivia, Brazil uses it. Uh, State in India, Greece uses it. Okay. These are among the countries that Luxembourg uses it. These are among the countries that use it. We have a little list in the book, but I won't bore your listeners by reading the whole list. Let me chime in with an interesting point, which is that the majority of countries in Latin America, and obviously many countries have troubled histories, many countries have come out of troubled histories. Uh, You know, Brazil has had a troubled history, but has, you know, had a very high turnout elections and they have brought about change. And as EJ said earlier, Chile has just reinstated on a very bipartisan basis to uh, enact universal voting. The enforcement mechanisms vary a lot. I'll just take Uruguay, which is, uh, you know, has had this for years. It's a very democratic country, a very participatory country. Um, and they link the provision of some public services, uh, like even getting a passport to whether you voted or not. We don't recommend that, but we should be clear. This does not, this is not a panacea uh, or a magic mix all, that yeah. will solve every problem, right. but it will absolutely significantly impact the turnout. And that's a huge piece of what we need to do. Okay. Let me ask you in your polling, was there any difference between Republicans and Democrats in their answers? You know what's interesting about that? Now, our polling, to just be very clear, was done before Trump began his kind of his sort of attack on the entire electoral system. So, uh, what year? What year did you? We, we did the polling in February of uh, January and February 2020. So it was at the beginning of the election year. Uh, what we found is. We, the underlying premise of this is agreed to by a substantial majority of Americans. 61% of Americans agree that voting is both a right and a duty. Republicans and Democrats were equally inclined uh, to say that. And at the time we did the polling, we had uh, 33% of Democrats, but we actually at that time had 29% of Republicans uh, who favored the idea. Independents were more resistant than either Republicans or Democrats. And that's probably people uh, who don't much like or care care as much about politics. Well, you know, it'd be very interesting to me to see if that's changed, especially in light of uh, what we've gone through since the 2020 election. And- you know, I'd like us to go back and do some uh, some more exploration on this at some point. Yeah. Well, Miles, you're doing some polling work on this that you might want to talk about. We are actually, uh, you know, doing some uh, general polling, but some polling specifically among Republican and Republican leaning independent voters. Did did you poll at the uh, the Trump town hall meeting? Was was that where you're doing your polling? (laughs) Yeah, it was an exit poll. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> okay. But we're we're trying to get a more representative polling uh, polling than that. Yes, um, I would think. But I would say, but I want to go back and say that that this the argument has to be made for this issue. I mean, one of the things that I've been found problematical about the debate about voter issues the last few years is it's it's sort of like trench warfare around can we get three more days of early voting can we try to have three less do we need a photo id or just a non-photo id uh are ballots being mailed to everybody or just certain people you know and on the one hand it's important to have that fight but on the other hand we both feel that it's really important to leap over that to sort of set up a north star reform which is the fundamental premise that everyone should participate in our acts 
of self-government and our democracy. And, you know, it's a, it's a long-term fight. We recognize that. But we want to try to elevate that notion, which has not really been, the case has not really been made for it. And the idea of universal voting, which, as EJ said, has 100 years of proof of concept elsewhere, but not in the United States, I think is that kind of a North Star reform. And so I'm excited to be working on it, partly because it just gets us out of this frame of two steps forward and two steps back. It's just that, you know, the polling you did was in early 220. Obviously, a lot happened, <laughs> uh, including uh, the president and at that town hall uh, saying that still insisting that this the election was stolen and there's all kind of fraud, et cetera, et cetera. So I would be interested in see what the numbers are for Republicans and Democrats. By the way, we think, Al, there's a kind of paradox here, which is if we had a system where everybody in the country knew that everybody was going to be voting, we think in the long run, it could reduce the a likelihood that people will yell fraud because the whole idea of these false claims of fraud is that some people somewhere stuff a ballot box with ballots not cast by real people. The idea here, and by the way, we have have, uh, some stuff on that boring but essential topic of voter administration, where we really think that it's important to support our whole election system to make it work. But if everybody knows that everybody is voting, we think in the long run that reduces the likelihood that these claims of fraud proliferate. So I think that's paradoxical given where some of the Trump voters are or supporters are now. Right. Republicans have just basically been in the job of suppressing votes. That's where they go. You know, they dribble to the right. That's what they, that's where they go. They're right-handed. Listen, I think this is a fabulous, one of a number of fabulous ideas, you know, and, and, and it includes a lot of things that we've already instituted, you know, motor voter, drop boxes, uh, voting by mail, all these things that, of course, Trump railed against, but um, that are just make it easier for, for people to vote. And also you, you're suggesting, and I think it's absolutely crucial that we make election day a, a holiday, a federal holiday. Right. That way people can take it off. And there are some people can't even take holidays off, but you know, uh, make it easier for them to vote on other days if they have to. Al, I want to push back on one thing that you said, by the way. Uh, I do think that there's a tremendous kind of movement within the Republican Party to try to make it more difficult for people to vote. And that's uh, that's a shame. But I was recently at a conference of election officials, as opposed to necessarily state legislators. And in one of the things that happened in 2020 was that election officials of both parties figured out how to deal with the uh, with the pandemic, figured out how to deal with the 400 lawsuits that were filed to change the procedures all the time. And we had a record turnout, you know, somewhere around 65, 66%, depending on how you count it. So the election officials, I think, even uh, many Republican election officials really worked hard to do a job. And it's a shame that they are now being undercut and vilified uh, by people in their own party, because I think the, the actual administration of elections has gotten better and better, even while the name-calling about election officials has gotten worse and worse. And, and worse among them, uh, President Trump. 
worst among them, President Trump. Absolutely. Well, I, Absolutely. I, I just want to underscore what Miles said, because one of the shames about what's happened since 2020, it was an amazing achievement. We were in the middle of a pandemic and all over the country, states and localities did everything they could to make it easier for people to vote. And we had this huge spike in turnout, not only because the election was very consequential, which obviously it was, but also because people showed that if you make it possible for them to cast ballots, they're going to go into that system. Since then, as you suggest, Al, the Brennan Center has done some great work on this. About half the states have built on the 2020 achievement and tried to make it easier still to vote. But somewhere right now, I think the count is like 19 or 20 states have kind of pulled back on the advances made uh, in 2020. And that's a real shame. Just just right off the top of your head, can you name some of those states? You mean the ones that have pulled back? Yes. Uh, Georgia, Texas, a, a number of states, uh, a number of states in the South. Uh, they're Republican states. I mean, it is a partisan. It is broadly speaking, a partisan split uh, between Republican and Democratic uh, states at the moment. Now, is this something that Congress can pass? In other words, is this, uh, let's say uh, we somehow pick up uh, a couple seats in the Senate and take the House again and Biden's reelected? We got enough. This is going to be hard to do considering the map, but we have enough Democratic senators to get rid of the filibuster on this. Can this be done by Congress? Uh, Yeah, very much so. Actually, let me do a little bit of a shout out, if I can, Al, to my own congressman, uh, Congressman John Larson, who actually put in a bill uh, last year, uh, the Civic Duty to Vote Act, H.R. 7536, and, you know, basically put this idea into federal legislation. So it's possible. But on the other hand, look, we're we're as as quasi realists. I wouldn't I wouldn't call EJ and me the biggest realists on the planet at the moment pushing this idea. But as general realists, we know that the likely much more likely path towards this is to do campaigns, uh, you know, in states, in municipalities where it's permitted by state law and advance the ball that way. Oh, these things, by the way, this is not pie in the sky. This things like this pass. And maybe take five years, maybe take 10 years, but things like this pass. I mean, that's why we've created the campaign, if I can just say, the the 100% Democracy and Initiative for Universal Voting. Uh, our website is 100percentdemocracy.org. We're trying to pass it in some states. And so we're eager for people to uh, get in touch with us and join the fight, actually. There's other, uh, you guys know the uh, National Popular Vote Interstate Compact? Yeah, I'm a big supporter of the Interstate Compact. It's it's going to take a while, but I think it's a it's a great idea uh, because we should be select the president on the basis of a popular vote, the way just about every other democracy does. Yeah, basically, what that is is there's now 15 states in the District of Columbia, and it looks like Minnesota and Michigan may be joining. And what this is is uh, just like Minnesota belongs to the Great Lakes interstate compact it also belongs to is about to join the national popular vote interstate compact and you have to follow the rules of a compact that you join and the states in this once the states reach a threshold of 270 electoral votes they have to give their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote 
Because the state legislatures control the electors, so they have the power to pledge their state electors to the winner of the national popular vote. We've got it in Maryland where I'm sitting. Our congressman, Jamie Raskin, championed it successfully in the Maryland state legislature when he was there. It's got a ways to go, but it is a good idea. Could I say one thing, by the way, people may have this in the back of their heads. You mentioned the polling earlier, what objections people have. There is a libertarian objection. And in good American fashion, we think we do provide for conscientious objector status. If somebody really, 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 truly does not want to cast a ballot, they can apply and get conscientious objector status. We don't think many people would do that because they wouldn't want to give up their vote. But uh, we allow that in our system. I would encourage libertarians to do that. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Hey, libertarians, come on. Show (laughs) where you are. Don't vote. Uh, But anyway, we do provide for that. And the fine is small and it's easy to get around in the system we propose if you as it is in Australia, by the way, where if you have any legitimate reason, you know, and legitimate is defined very broadly for not being able to vote, you don't pay the fine. You just have to answer the summons so that if I remember right, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Miles, I think only. 13% 13% of non-voters actually uh, end up having to pay a fine at the end of it all. Yes. No, that's exactly right. That's about it's, 20 uh, bucks, right? 20, yeah. 20 Australian dollars, which is about 15 US dollars. Well, there you go. And it can't be compounded. It's not a criminal penalty. We, we are very careful not to turn this into anything oppressive. We think of this much more as a nudge than a shove. Yeah. And now what happens when people, everybody's voting? People must become more informed. People (laughs) who are going to vote and know they're going to vote tend to get more informed, right? Yeah. And they get more uh, and they get invited, going back to EJ's point, to the party. Let me just tell you a story, Al, and you'll you'll, uh, appreciate this, no doubt. Uh, But when I ran for the state legislature the first time, I was given a list by my campaign people to say, and the list was, all of the registered voters, and then highlighted by who were what we called prime voters. And what they said to me when I left the for the knocking on the doors was, Miles, just talk to the people who are highlighted here. Because the other people who are not registered or who are not uh, frequent voters, they're not going to help you. And your, your time is the most valuable asset of the campaign. They said that every single day. And so I would be going down the street and People might be looking and interested in talking to me, and I would need to just walk by uh, because they're not part of the process. So the idea that if you have universal voting, every single person is part of that process. Okay. May I suggest if you had people interested in talking to you, you should have stopped and talked to them. (laughs) Well, I always say I don't believe a word that Miles says on this because he would never not talk to a, of a potential voter or even an unregistered voter, but his point still stands. Right. Thank you, EJ. I, pre- I appreciate the, my Very, my very confusing right. this last couple minutes here. <laughs> I, I usually try to talk to people who are playing it straight with me. <laughs> yeah, could I just say on your point, Al, about people informing themselves, one of the people we talked to is Kim Beasley, who was the um, ambassador to the U.S. from Australia, but he was also a leader of the Labor Party and was involved in politics since he was a kid. His dad was in politics. 
And he is, so he spent a lot of time at polling places. And what he said in the interview is, you know, you could probably tell that, you know, real political junkies from people who might be drawn into the system because it was the law, because uh, it was declared a duty. Um, but he said these voters were engaged when you talk to them and they did spend time caring about, um, you know, what they were doing. And one of my favorite pictures from Australia is a polling place near Bondi Beach in Sydney, where you got four surfers in their wetsuits with their boards hanging against the polling booth, casting their ballots. It just brings in everyone and everyone knows it's part of what they're supposed to do as citizens. And people accept this system. It has not been repealed. There hasn't been a big movement to repeal it over 100 years. Well, I, I think that the more uh, the more we publicize this, I, I think this is something that it's not going to go nationwide soon. But all you need is a state or two. Then maybe uh, I, I would love this to happen in a purple state. I don't know if, if that's possible, but that might change some stuff, right? Uh, good luck with this. Thank you guys for doing this. Thanks so much for having us on, Alan, for advancing the idea. Really appreciate it. Well, that's what we do. We advance ideas here. Let, let me just say, when, when EJ and I wrote the book, and, uh, and, and we thank Heather McGee, your, uh, one of your other guests, for writing the forward, um, we thought we would get two different kinds of reactions. One being, which was mine and when I first heard it, wow, this is interesting. Let's have this conversation. I've never heard of this before, uh, et cetera. And then the other the other uh, reaction would be, this is crazy. This is pie in the sky. We can't even hold on to the democracy that we have. But I have been very encouraged, I have to say, uh, apropos to your point of a minute ago, that the far larger reaction that we have gotten has been, wow, this is interesting. I never thought about it. Let's begin the discussion. And so uh, we are hoping to do, through the Initiative for Universal Voting, uh, find some places, actually Minnesota would be a place I would love to do, tell you the truth, that are willing to experiment, willing to put advance themselves. We, we have always have the highest turnout for elections in Minnesota. Yes, you absolutely do. Absolutely do. And you have a, a really great system. You've got a good secretary of the state. Now there's a legislature that I think is open. So I think it's a, I think it's a, a prime territory. But we have seen, as you mentioned, other reforms, same-day voter registration, the restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions, uh, mail-in voting, early voting, that started out as fringe ideas or one or two places, and now, you know, they're in 25 or 30 states each. So uh, I'm a believer in the fact that you can take an idea that's, uh, that's a good idea, but that hasn't been discussed before, and, uh, and really move it into the debate. So that's what we're trying to do. The website, if I can advertise, is 100percentdemocracy.org. And uh, we'd love to have people uh, join the fight with us. Have, have you tried pushing us with DeSantis? Uh, well, I was speaking to him yesterday, but I don't think he was buying it. <laughs> well, no, that was we very have nice not. of him Thank you, to meet <laughs> with you. That's right. And take his time. Uh, well, thank you, guys. Good luck with this. We're going to um, this is this is a great idea. This is not a dream. This is something that can happen. I, I really believe. Thank you. You're weird Thanks too. very much. Yeah, this is great. Great great to talk to you, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. 
I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.